0: Hello freelancers, welcome to today's episode of The Freelance Blueprint. I'm your host Lizzie, a UX designer, digital nomad and freelancer myself. In this podcast, I'm interviewing fellow freelancers from all over the world, so you can learn how to improve your business skills and see what freelancing is really like. Today we're joined by Sonia, a freelance journalist who has been freelancing for 12 years now. She's a regular contributor for Fortune and WebMD, and she's also written for Scientific American. We connected in a co-living in Chiang Mai, and we didn't actually know each other until a few weeks ago. So I'm very excited to talk to her and find out more about her freelance journey. Hi, Sonia. Thanks for joining the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I am
1: a freelance journalist. And I am based in Atlanta, Georgia, in the U.S., and I spend several months a year as a digital nomad working remotely from different international spots that I choose. Nice. As a journalist, I cover scientific and medical research. So, you know, if you were to read an article about a new cancer drug or a new discovery related to some gene that causes a particular disease, those are the kind of uh, news stories that
0: I write. Wow. Is there a specific reason how you got into that type of topic or was it something that always interested you? It was not something that always interested
1: me. In fact, I can't believe that I work in the sciences. (laughs) It was really not anything that interested me at all. And um, when I was looking to go to journalism school I was looking for a very specific kind of program. I had already done my bachelor's degree and I had already done my master's degree. And so to go to journalism school would have been an additional master's degree for me. And at the time I was an adjunct lecturer. So like a part-time college teacher teaching writing in the U.S., And I really, really wanted out of that. So I was looking for a journalism program that was very specifically going to give me the skill set that I needed to get in, do the program, get out and get a job. I wanted to be completely done with teaching and completely done with academia. Many graduate-level journalism programs didn't do that. They were instead training you to be a communications researcher or training you to be a journalism professor. And the last thing that I wanted was another teaching credential. I wanted, I wanted to abandon teaching completely. And so I found out about a program at the University of Georgia that did exactly what I wanted. It was, go, it was an intensive program that in two years or less, I was gonna get the skills that I wanted. I was going to be able to make connections. I was gonna be able to do the networking that I wanted to do during the program. And the chair of the program, her name's Pat Thomas, pretty much told me that it was, it was gonna give me exactly what I was looking for, that I would be working when I graduated from the program, I'd be a working journalist. It was all incredibly tantalizing. The only thing was the program was a specific master's degree in health and medical journalism. And I even said to her, I was like, could I just do the program, but like not write about medicine? I wanted to do journalism because I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to be an artist and weave these these narratives about people's lives. First, she said, no, I could not. I could not do the program without doing the health <laughs> element. But she said to me, every story is a health story. And she really convinced me that the stories that I would come across in health journalism were really stories worth telling, that they were going to have these interesting human narratives. And it really was going to be the kinds of stories that I was really craving to tell. So I mulled it over for some time. I went back to her and I decided that, that, yes, I would, I would do it. With trepidation, I applied and got accepted to the program and um, I absolutely loved it from the very first day and I felt like an anthropologist, I felt like a storyteller. It was scratching every creative itch that I had and I absolutely was hooked and I have been doing it ever since and really when I think back to who I thought I was in high school and who I thought I was in college before journalism school. I never would have thought I was a science person.
0: I really feel that I am now and recognize myself in that way. Wow, that's quite a story. I always find it so interesting when someone does something they didn't expect to do before and what happened for them to get there. Are there like similar courses now in different fields? Would you want to change to a different topic? Or do you think that is a good enough basis that you could technically write about other things? I can write about other things. I
1: don't, have, I don't feel that I have any need to do so i have a really strong client base i have editors that call me regularly to ask me to write stories about health topics about scientific topics about research with the editors that know me i'm known as somebody who writes about these topics and so i would be creating a new and unnecessary challenge for myself by deciding to shift and do a different topic. I've written a good number of other science stories that weren't health science related, but the health stories really, really interest me. I get to tell people's stories and your health really does define so much what your story is and what your trajectory is. And I love telling those stories. I also love translating science for people, explaining to people who think that, oh, well, this is over my head. This isn't for me to understand. I love to break down the science and explain that to people who feel that way. But yeah, I'm very, I'm very happy continuing to report on this topic for as long as I can.
0: You mentioned explaining the stories to people that might not know enough about the topic or that it's like science always sounds like, oh, there's a lot of jargon and might not understand everything. I assume you know who you're writing for when you write your articles. So when you write an article, what's your approach to it? And how do you consider the audience you're writing for based on the different scientific levels they might have?
1: So I write for a number of different publications, and they have a really big range in who they're aiming towards, who their target audience is. In WebMD, for example, the editors tell the writers directly that we need to be writing on a sixth to eighth grade reading level. And I think there's some research behind that, that the average sort of health literacy level of a reader is sixth to eighth grade. In the U.S., that's a 12-year-old. A sixth to eighth grade is 12 to 14 years old. So WebMD tells you straight out, we're writing to a sixth to eighth grade reading level. And so that dictates not only how you explain a concept about like how a medicine works or how an organ, what an organ's role is in your body, but it also dictates the type of sentence structure that you choose. How long are the sentences? For sixth to eighth grade, they need to be shorter, simpler sentences. The words need to have fewer syllables. Paragraphs need to be shorter. And so this may even be the difference between using but versus however. I was just looking at an article the other day. I had written incision and not even thinking because I interviewed doctors for the story and they said, you know, first we make the incision and I just written incision and copy editor changed it to cut. And of course, you're not, you don't say incision to a sixth grader. You say the surgeon will cut you open on this place. And so it's things like that that you need to explain it just using a simple vocabulary that any anyone would have. And so for that one, like I said, they've they've told me the reading level and the liter the science savvy level of the target audience. And then you have a magazine like another one that I'm a regular contributor for is a cancer magazine called Cure. This magazine is for lay people. It's for people who are either living with cancer themselves or uh, people who are taking care of someone who has cancer, their spouse or their their parent or their child has cancer. That magazine really speaks at a high level. When the articles discuss how the medications work, how cancer grows and spreads in your body, the writers for that magazine do so at a, a little bit higher level in terms of vocabulary and in terms of the knowledge they expect the readers to have. When you get to know people who are living with cancer, you can come to understand why they would be reading at a higher level. People who are living with a cancer that they're dealing with for years, they, when they find out that they have cancer, not all of them, but very, very many, many of them they almost make it as if it is their full-time job to learn about this disease, to learn about, is there a different doctor that I should be talking to? Is there a better drug that I could be on? Is there a clinical trial that I can get into? And so for that particular magazine, I interview patients for every single story. There's always two patients and three doctors in every single story. And the patients that I speak to are so incredibly well-versed in cancer treatment, what's currently available, what's in clinical trials, what kind of treatments are coming down the pipeline, which hospitals and cancer centers are good for which kinds of cancers. These People fly all across the U.S. to get their care at different cancer centers than the one that's nearby them because they found out that this doctor was the one who was best at this particular cancer. I mean, they become experts. They and their spouses, it, it just becomes their full-time job. They really become like researchers, and so it makes sense to me that this magazine needs to speak to somebody who has has achieved that level of knowledge. And so, if I were to write about a brand new cancer drug, for that magazine, it would sound so much higher level than if I wrote the exact same information on the exact same drug for WebMD because the audiences are just types of readers. And then there's yet a third type of reader that I write for. I write for some magazines that are only for healthcare providers. I write for one magazine that's called Pharmacy Today and many pharmacists in the United States subscribe to this magazine. And so for that one, I may write about, let's take the cancer drug example. I may write about the same new cancer drug for that magazine, but the news story is packaged to deliver the information that a pharmacist wants to have about that. How does the drug work? What do I need to explain to patients who come into the pharmacy to pick up prescriptions? What do I need to explain to them about this new drug? How do I explain the side effects to them? And so- You very much have to adjust what you write for the audience. I don't have to do any sort of digging to find out who the audience is. Your editors and the magazine are very clear about who their audience is. This is who we're writing for. This is how we speak to them.
0: How do you work between projects? Do you work on one article until it's done? Or do you have several articles that you work on simultaneously and then you have to like context switch also between the different tonalities that you have? The second thing that you said, I'm constantly working on multiple things at a time. There wouldn't be a way
1: to really make a good living at it if I saw one thing all the way through before I started on another thing. There are things on my calendar that are due in a few days. And then there are things that are due the next week. And then there are things that are due a month from now. And they're all in various stages of of progress. The the ones that are, that have deadline further out, it's usually because they're bigger, longer pieces and they require more interviews. They require more time to actually sit and write the story. And so when I get a, a story assignment, the way that I handle it on my calendar is that I look at how many days it's going to take to actually sit down and write the story after all the interviews are complete, after I've done all the research. How many days do I need to block off just to write it? And in an ideal world, those days are truly just blocked off. I don't have to do phone calls for other stories. I don't have to do research for other stories on those days. That's not always possible because I'm, re- I'm interviewing doctors and scientists And I'm also interviewing sick people. And so I really need to be available to talk to them whenever they're willing to talk to me. But ideal world, I would say, okay, I have this 3000 word article. That's kind of the longest style of article I would write. It's due a month from now. And so I'm going to block off the three days, including the due date to write that story. And so I need all my interviews to be completed two days before that because I send my interviews off to be transcribed. And so now I have three weeks, right? And so as soon as I get the assignment, I start doing the outreach to all the scientists, doctors and patients that I need to interview for that story. And I ask them if they could schedule a 30 minute phone call with me for any time by close of business on this day, that that end of that three week mark. And so then as soon as the interview is over, send the file off to the transcriptionist and it's back in two days. And by that three-day writing block that I've set off, I have all my transcriptions and I can do all my writing. Now, while that's happened, that was five phone calls that took place in that time and some research that I had to do to prepare for the phone calls, those that didn't by any means fill up three weeks of my time. And so during those three weeks that I was doing the interviews and the research for that article, I also had other articles in progress that might have required less work, maybe a 600-word article that required two 10-minute phone calls. But I did the same thing. I said, well, for the 600-word article, I need to block off just maybe a day to actually sit down and write it. And so I need the interviews to be done by this day. And I need to start contacting the, the researchers who I'll interview by this day. So it's all overlap and it's all sort of a constantly rolling schedule. And for me, it makes total sense and it's perfectly simple and easy to navigate. But when I tell other people about this,
0: they're like, oh, you just made my husband! I could never do that. Did it always come easy to you or did you have to find a system that works for you? Because like even when you explained to me having to consider all of these things working parallel, but then at the same time, it must also be mentally quite exhausting when you know you talk to someone who's sick maybe they have like like cancer is not a nice like not no disease is nice but like especially when it's it's like emotionally it can be very you know this person might die or like i mean we all will eventually yeah but not necessarily like before the story is published right has it always been easier did you have to find your own system to manage all of that and how do you manage the emotions around writing all of those articles right 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 okay so
1: it's a a two-part question right so the managing it in terms of the time stuff and I have to talk to these people by this day and write this while I'm talking to these other people for their story that came naturally to me I don't know why it's a lot like my mom is like I think that it's just kind of like in the genes I am a multitasker I have good time management skills I'm kind of efficient. I definitely see inefficiencies. Like when I'm here, I'm in Thailand and I'm working from here because I want to finish my workday and get out and like go visit a Buddhist temple or go up to the mountains. I find that I am so much more efficient. I'm like, get it done and get out of here. And I'm like, hmm, how come I'm not getting getting out of the house by two o'clock every day? And so I have inefficiencies, but yes, I I, I think I have a natural ability to time manage and to multitask multitasking that just having multiple projects going on at the same time but like this for example is my calendar and so the yellow anything that's yellow it's due I have to give I have to give something to somebody that day and so I start to, and I always do it on paper because I feel like I'm a little bit more responsive to actual seeing paper. So my calendar is always out on my desk in front of me. And every day when I sit down at my desk, I see, okay, there's nothing yellow today. There's a yellow highlight coming up a few days from now. And it kind of triggers a little a little quickening of the blood pressure if I look at my calendar and there's a yellow highlight today. So there's that. And then you can also see there's like crossed lines and pencil, those are the days that are just for writing. And so technically I'm not supposed to schedule any phone calls on on those days because I don't want to start writing and then stop and need to prepare for a phone call and get on the phone with someone because I find a major time loss is the time you spend shifting gears mentally. An ideal world, I could just work on one project all the way. Really the ideal would be if I had days that were only phone calls, days that were only writing, and days that were only reading, because that stopping one thing and in your brain going to the other it takes time sometimes it's valuable because my brain gets tired of doing that one thing, and I wish I could just stop writing and and take a phone call or read a read a something that I need to read, yes, the time management comes a bit easily to me. Talking to people, the emotional aspect of talking to people, especially people who are sick or people whose family members are sick, it's not, I don't think it's as hard as, as it might sound for one reason, because the people who are speaking to me for my articles, they are doing so voluntarily. One common way I find people who have metastatic cancer, who I interview, is through the doctors I interview. So let's say that I did an article on a brand new drug. And I interviewed the doctor who ran the clinical trial that proved that that drug worked. So after I talked to him or her about how the drug works and the results of the clinical trial, the last thing that I ask on the call is, do you by any chance have a patient who's doing really well on this drug, somebody who would really enjoy sharing their story with others with cancer as a way to help those people? A lot of times the doctor will say, I have just the person. This process of interviewing people about their health stories, these people sort of self-select and somebody who is feeling really sick or feeling really down in the dumps and doesn't want to talk about how they're doing with their cancer treatment, I don't encounter those, those stories as much. And so as a result, you may hear from a lot of patients who have a really sunny outlook because those are the ones that are going to be willing to sit on the phone with the journalist and tell their whole health story. Another thing that I think makes the calls easier is that I've gotten the impression with some of the patients that I interview that it's very, maybe very therapeutic for them or very soothing for them to talk to someone about it. Maybe they have talked enough to all their family and friends. Maybe they um, don't feel comfortable telling their family and friends just how serious their disease is. In fact, I had a patient I interviewed once and she told me at the beginning of the call, you know, I was diagnosed in this year. I had stage four and she said, oh, by the way, I never told my children it was stage four. I told them it was stage three. And she said, so don't, don't print what stage it was. And I got the impression that she felt more comfortable talking to a stranger she didn't have to worry if I worried about her. She didn't have to worry if, if, if her condition was going to stress me out. I wasn't her child. I find that because they have signed up to speak to me, it's not terribly uncomfortable to talk to someone, even when they're very, very sick. And I've had patients who I interview tell me, you know, I probably only have a few months left, but the type of person who's willing to tell this story to a stranger and to a journalist on the phone is somebody who is, is, is comfortable in that, in that phone call. And so it makes my job a lot easier. But I often think when I get off the phone with patients who've told me really sensitive stories, really delicate stuff, really heavy stuff, I always feel like it is such a gift. I feel very, very lucky that they were willing to share that with me, But I was able to get the story. My editors put this on me and say, we want a story about this drug that's for this terrible disease and we need to interview two patients who have that disease. It's a lot. And so I'm fully reliant on people being willing to to tell me their their stories and tell me about their really difficult journeys. And um, I'm fully at their mercy to be able to get these stories. And I feel really, really blessed when people open up and, and share them with me.
0: I think there's something about It's a different environment knowing that maybe someone else will also listen to it. Like the first Mm -hmm. podcast I recorded was with a friend. And of course, it's like, okay, what would be relevant to the listener? But they also share it in a different way. So I can imagine the patients that you're interviewing, that for them, it's like, I can tell the story how I want it to be told. I can tell it without having to keep in mind the people that are worried about me. And it must be quite nice for you to be able to be that medium that can translate it into a magazine or newspaper article that allows them to have their story be told. Yeah. When it comes to freelancing, it sounds like journalism involves so, so many things. Mm -hmm. You have to interview, you have to organize a lot, and luckily you're natural with them. You have Mm -hmm. to be aware who you're interviewing. You must have all the medical knowledge to understand what questions to ask, like all of these things if someone would be interested in becoming a freelance journalist what skills do you think they definitely need to have and what are the skills that you can learn along the way okay that's a good question so we'll
1: we'll take for granted that they have the skill of journalism right and you go to you go to journalism school or or you do what it is that you do to become trained enough to be a journalist and then you would either Go the freelance route, or you would, you would um, work for an employer to the degree that that is still, still possible. I sometimes think that, that freelancing as a journalist is a bit more stable, and you have a bit more control over it than you do if you, if you work for an employer. So we'll take for granted that the person has journalism skills. I think the skills that you need to be a freelancer is you do need time management skills, I think the reason that I I started out already doing so well as a freelancer, because I, I came out of generalism school and I started to freelance literally the week after I actually had my first freelance assignment in the, during the week of final exams in, in my last semester of journalism school. And so I started to freelance immediately. I think the reason that I was immediately doing well and getting calls back from editors to write for them again, or that editor was saying, Hey, I just started to work with this new, this new journalist. And and you should try her too is because I met my deadlines. And especially earlier in my career, deadlines made me scared. They don't make me scared now because now I know that I meet them. And I also have relationships with my editors that I know if there's going to be a problem that I can't meet it. I know that I need to tell them in advance. I know that they'll work with me and that sort of thing. But in the beginning when all my relationships with my editors were brand new relationships and I was a brand new journalist, I, I felt like physical fear related to deadlines. You have to be able to meet a deadline. I thought that everybody who was a journalist met deadlines. But I have had editors say to me, oh, well, we always know Sonia's work is going to be on time. And I thought, well, is that not is that not a given? Is everybody's work not on time? Is that, a, is it optional? And so I know that for some people, that's not something that comes naturally for them. They spin their wheels for a long time and they just can't hit that deadline. And they maybe need to work in a, in a different environment where they can get extra time or, or, or have softer deadlines. I, I'm not sure what that environment would be. Time management, you've got to have multitasking. I don't know if that's something that. Um, I think people can can learn how to become better managers of their time. I've gotten better at it since I've been freelancing over the last 10-12 years. Even though I say that it's something that has come natural to me, I've gotten better. I've gotten much more efficient. I used to do way too many interviews for a story and spend way too much time preparing to just sit down and write the thing, and now I know the places where I can really compress in my in my process. And so if you can get better at it i think that it's something that you can that you can learn to do period i also think that i'm sure that i know i know a lot of freelancers and i know that they have all different kinds of we have all different kinds of personalities but i think there are some personality traits that you probably really need to be um a successful freelancer and make a living i think that you need to be a little bit of a go getter you need to be a bit of a hustler a bit of a salesperson and i've had quite a few friends who don't freelance and they may be in, in media or writing or in some creative world, but they, they they work for a fixed employer and they say, I could never do what you do. Or they say things like, how do you sleep at night not worried about where your next paycheck is going to come from? This has literally never bothered me. I've lost sleep over all sorts of things. I have not lost sleep over whether or not where, where my next assignment is coming from. And I am, um, if I look at my calendar that usually looks like this, and let's say instead that it looks like this, if I notice that, that next month's calendar looks like that, I'm sending emails, I'm making phone calls. And that's a particular kind of personality. I skew a little bit extroverted, which I don't think you have to, to be a freelancer, because freelancing is also very isolated. You work by yourself at home a lot of the time. I have um, some people skills that for me, I feel very comfortable reaching out, emailing all my editors and saying, Hey, haven't heard from you in a minute. Just wanted to let you know, I've got a little, I've got a little extra bandwidth right now. If you have any work that needs done, it always bears fruit to send out an email like that. I don't think that that instinct comes naturally for a lot of people. And I also think people don't want that. Some people say, you know, I want, to already know what my work is, hire me, let me come in to your office every day and, and and sit at my desk and I know what is expected of me every day. There is already work available for me, and so it 's not for everyone. I not only am okay with hustling for work and doing sort of the hunter gather aspect of freelancing, I actually really love it. I took a contract job one time where I was four months full-time at a desk as the news writer. I was filling in for somebody who was on maternity leave and they needed a daily staff writer. And so I paused freelancing for four months and went in and, and took this this day job. I really hated it. I missed networking and marketing. And I missed the the win of like, every time an email comes in, it's like, Hey, Sonia, I've got a story for you. Think you have time to take this on? We want a story about this and it's due on this day and it pays this amount. I get a little like dopamine drip when when those emails come in. There's no question that you're going to get an assignment when you're a daily staff writer. And I think I actually, I love the hustle. I think to a certain degree to be successful, you might need a personality that loves the hustle a little bit, kind of a go-getterism. doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert. Maybe it means you have to be a bit business-minded or a bit sales or marketing-minded. As a freelance journalist, you don't just get to enjoy the writing process and the reporting process. You're doing the writing and the reporting and they are very enjoyable, but you have to have an aspect of your time that's devoted a bit to the hustle. And it's less and less over time, because when I was first freelancing, I had to frequently reach out to new contacts, new leads that I had heard about. Hey, this editor might meet new people. Why don't you reach out to her? I did do that more often. Now, at this point in my career, I'm so lucky that I have a, a stable group of editors that reaches out to me frequently. And so I don't have to hustle as much, but I love the thrill of having a new email in my inbox. That's offering me an
0: assignment. What can I say? (laughs) I I completely feel you for me. It's very similar. If it's like at the beginning of my career, Mm. I went on LinkedIn and applied for every single thing that I could find Mm -hmm. that could possibly want like a freelance UX designer. And now I have people reach out to me because someone referred me or because a client in the past needs something again. And it's, I actually have to say no to people and I don't have that fear. At the beginning when I started, It's was like, what if nobody hires me? It's with everything when you start something new. But now it's like, I know I'm going to get a gig. And of course, you have to put yourself out there. Like you say, if you see, okay, this contract ends here or my next month's calendar is empty, you just reach out to people And there's always someone who needs something. There's always a story to be told. There's always some, uh, like for me, for example, there's always someone who wants to launch a new website or an app. There's always something. And also you mentioned before about the security that you have with a job when you're like permanent somewhere, like especially for journalists um, that it's easier to be a freelancer. What would you tell someone that wants to do journalism um, and is just getting started and trying to decide if this should go into a permanent role or start freelancing they might not have the connections mm-hmm. they might not have contacts to magazines or they might not know what to niche down on because for you it was very clear at the beginning to niche down on health and medications but for someone who's literally just started who knows they like to write maybe they finish their degree or about to finish what would you tell them to do?
1: I think that if you're trying to decide between being a freelancer and being, um, and, and getting a staff position, and let's just say, assuming that they even have the choice, let's assume that there is a staff position available to them and there is some path to freelancing for them. And they're really just trying to decide which one is best for me. I think that the first thing they should do is let go of the idea that the staff job is the one that's stable and the one that you can rely on. And the freelance one is the one that's unpredictable and the one that is going to leave you, you know, starving and without work. It's, it's simply not true. First of all, with a staff job, you know, the, the, the way I explain why your, your staff job is not as stable as you think it is with a staff job, all your money is coming from one place. And so if you lose that job, you have completely 100% lost your income. And in the time that I've been freelancing for the last um, 12 years, I've seen my journalist colleagues, people that I know, be victim of major layoffs, huge layoffs at major publications, news outlets, health information outlets. I've seen multiple layoffs at one of my clients over the last 12 years, I've probably seen mass layoffs four different times. This is one of my clients. I've seen then the people at that publication move on to another publication and see layoffs there. And again, when you get get let go from your one employer, your whole income source is gone. Whereas if I lost one client, I might've lost 25% of my income. And I'm not gonna feel the sting of that immediately and i'm not going to feel as big of a sting as i would if i just got laid off with with some severance or two weeks pay or something like that that's when i start you know making my phone calls and finding some other way to fill my calendar honestly the most common way that i've lost a client is my editor at a particular publication gets laid off or decides to quit so what happens The remaining editors at that publication, they say, oh, Sonia used to write for so-and-so. So-and-so's left us now. Let's call Sonia and ask her to write for us. And then that editor that left, she went to another publication. And so now they start calling me from there. And so it usually has a multiplying effect for me. So that's how I explain to people to let go of this idea. If you're just trying to make a choice about stability, forget it. Choose the one that you like best because there is not, that's fake to think that there is stability in having a single employer. When you're thinking about freelancing, one thing that you need to be aware of is that when you first start out, you probably won't make what would be your starting pay at a permanent job. I'm talking about in your first few months. But as you go on, if you keep getting busier and busier, as most of the freelance writers I know do, you will eventually be making more than you could make at a permanent job because The pay raises that you can get every year as a freelancer, there's not really a cap on them. There's not really a ceiling there. Whereas if you work for a company that gives sort of um, symbolic pay raises and promotions every year, they're for a certain percentage. It's not going to go up by large amounts every year. Your salary is probably never going to go over a certain defined amount. Whereas as a freelancer, like I said, you'll probably start out earning less than you would have if you had taken that permanent job. But within a few years, you have every possibility that you could be making more. I can't guarantee it would, but you you have every chance that you could be making more. The way that I solved that problem of how do you start as a freelancer? You just got one assignment. You're going to write it. You're going to get paid and that's it. What do you do after that? You can't just work on one project and see it through and not start on the next one until that one's done because you have to always have your next payment for something lined up. And so the thing that I did when I was first starting out and that I always advise to young journalists who are just about to graduate is I looked for a contract job that was about 20 hours a week. And um, it was a job that I could work whenever I wanted to. And, and I would bill for the hours. And then in that other time, I could start hustling and accumulating assignments, doing what I actually wanted to do. And so when I first started out, I got a contract as an editor of a blog. And that was not what I wanted that, my life's work to be. But it was billable hours. They told me this is going to require between 10 and 20 hours a week of your time. I liked that there was a range. So when I was first starting out and I didn't have a lot of other assignments as a journalist, I didn't have the assignments doing what I wanted to do. I could spend 20 hours a week working on stuff related to that blog and bill for it. And then as the journalism assignments accumulated, I could pump the brakes a little bit on that blog job. The other thing that I did, I was doing tutoring. SAT tutoring, helping American high school kids prepare for the college entrance exams. Same thing, I could take on as many or or as few hours as I wanted. I was working for a place that offered SAT prep courses and I would tell the woman who ran the program, I can do, I'm available for 10 hours a week. And then as the freelancing started to get better, I said, you know what, I'm available for five hours a week. I'm available for one night a week. Those jobs are, they may not be necessarily easy to come by, but you should find something like that that you have a little bit of control over how many or how few hours you work so that you can take care of yourself. You work it along with journalism. And as the journalism assignments build up, you start to taper this down until you can eventually wean yourself off. Let me try to do the math. I think I probably continued to work that blog job by the end at very few hours a week. But I think I didn't fully quit that blog job until about six years of freelancing and it really tapered off very naturally. I got the impression that they also didn't need me as much anymore. I didn't need them. It kind of just came to a natural close, which was very nice. But that's something that I always recommend because obviously people, some people say, well, should I just take the permanent job while I try to start freelancing? I'm like, well, when are you going to try to start freelancing? Evenings and weekends, you're going to be exhausted. You're never going to leave the permanent job. You can't build up enough freelance work on the side to be able to eventually let go of the salary and the benefits that you're getting from the permanent job so you have to start yourself off just surviving get that 20 hour a week job to just cover what your basic needs are and that will kind of force you to build up the freelance work because you'll have to do it you'll never be able to like wean yourself off of that full-time job And also, who wants to have a full-time job and then nights and weekends
0: work a second job to try to build your freelance career? I mean, there's so many things that I would like to ask you. Even what you mentioned at the beginning about you sent your interviews off to be transcribed. So there's outsourcing involved, all these kinds of things. But I'm also aware we we talked for a while. (laughs) There are three questions that I would like to ask everyone who comes as a guest on this podcast at the end. One question is, would you ever go back to a permanent job? Never.
1: (laughs) I even had to cut you off to make sure I said my answer. I don't need to think about it for one second. I absolutely, I mean, if there were circumstances that required it, because I don't want to speak from a place of privilege or that I'm above that, but as long as I have the choice, I'll put it that way, as long as I have the choice, I will always work for myself. And in fact, I have said to people before, that is more important to me to work for myself than it is to practice journalism. And that if there was no longer any way to be a freelancer as a journalist, I think I know, I know that I would try to find out what I could do as a freelancer rather than find out a new format of a way
0: to be a journalist.
1: Sorry, journalism, (laughs) anyone who's listening.
0: (laughs) I I completely understand. I completely get you because I feel the same. Mm. Okay, next question. If you could go back in time to when you got started, where you haven't freelanced before, what would you tell your younger self? Hmm. I mean,
1: I was going to say that I would tell my younger self that this was going to turn out to be a very fruitful and successful career. But if I told my younger self that... Would I have hustled as as much and made it a successful and fruitful career? So I'm not sure, but I definitely am aware that my younger self, who was first starting out in journalism, my attitude was, I'll just keep doing this one more year. And I had said, as long as each year is better financially, professionally than the one before, I'll sign up for another year. It still is at 12 years later. And so maybe I would give my younger self a hint about that, but not make them make my younger self feel so secure that they didn't hustle to get to that
0: place. (laughs) And last question. If your future self 10 years from now would come to you today, what do you think she would tell you? Hmm. She might, she might say,
1: relax, you're going to be okay, because there's a certain level of uncertainty uh, in this, uh, this way of working. (laughs) She might show me ways that I could have made things easier for myself. Because like I said, there are there are ways that you just, you do, you do too much. And like, you didn't have to you didn't have to interview 12 people for that story. You needed to interview two. And, and so maybe, maybe that would be it, that she would say, you know, come
0: grasshopper. You, you, didn't need to,
1: <laughs> you didn't need to work yourself to the bone for that one story. Maybe something like that. Nice, nice.
0: Well, this was so nice talking to you. It was also so interesting to learn more about journalism because that's a completely different field to what I'm doing. If anyone wants to learn more about you, where can they find you? I have a website and it is easy to find. It's soniacollins.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this. Thanks for being a guest.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: This was such a lovely conversation with Sonia. It was great to hear that someone has been freelancing for 12 years, is still not bored of it and would rather continue freelancing than continue being a journalist. I'm linking her website in the description of this podcast. Make sure to check it out. If you like this episode, please leave a review. Also, feel free to share it with someone who is thinking of freelancing and could benefit from it. That's all for me and I can't wait to have you again next week.